Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. There's a change happening in the way we live, the way we work, the way we spend our money and make our decisions. We are evolving to be more conscious in our actions in a way that serves the world and makes it a better place. Welcome to The Ethical Evolution. The Ethical Evolution podcast is brought to you by Ethical Change Agency. I'm Bindi, I'm the founder, and my mission is to help ethical entrepreneurs and holistic healers to find their voice through spiritual coaching and podcasting. I'm honoured to bring you the stories of those who create change through healing, kindness, innovation, purpose, and spirit. Understanding that to create collective change, we need to be the change. It all begins with us. Heidi Saville is a therapist, coach, and educator who's been working with polyamorous people for almost a decade. She believes that polyamory can be a satisfying and empowering relationship model and is passionate about helping folks get the most out of their relationships. During our conversation, it became clear that if we could all make the small change of releasing judgment of others and their relationships, there would be a lot more love. Welcome, Heidi, to The Ethical Evolution. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Now, I'm so excited uh, for you to join us all the way from Portland, Oregon. Can you tell us who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, I live in Portland, Oregon, and I am a polyamory coach as well as an educator and a therapist. So I wear all of those hats and really support people around polyamory and specifically starting the polyamory journey. Mm. Now, I, I know we've got a lot to unpack when it comes to polyamory. So let's get started. So let's say we're in a, a monogamous relationship and we've decided mm. that uh, we want to open that up and see other people. What's some of the first steps that you'd recommend to a couple to take if they're interested in going down this path? Oh, such a great question. Um, I think that luckily these days, there's a lot of education available out there. And so I would recommend um, folks get started with some either reading or listening to podcasts or checking out articles online. Um, There's so much to learn. And I really think that um, starting from a place of education can be really supportive, especially in predicting that pre-existing relationship, because there's a lot of really common beginner mistakes that folks can avoid with just a little bit of, um, yeah, education and a bit of a grounding in the, in the philosophy and the practice before getting started. So, um, for you, um, you're also experienced in this area too, right? You're not, you're not just preaching it. You actually live it, right? That is true. Yes, I do. So can you tell us a bit more about your polyamory journey? Yeah, absolutely. So, I, oh gosh, it was about 10 years ago now, and I had just gotten married 
And in the lead up to my marriage, um, my partner at the time and I uh, spent a lot of time just talking about like, what does marriage mean? What are we what are we doing here? What do we believe? What are our values? And in doing that, we talked about it a little before, but particularly after the the wedding, um, we really discovered that for both of us, monogamy wasn't a very important value to us. Commitment was um, emotional engagement and intimacy, connection. Um, those things were very important. But interestingly, monogamy just wasn't. It didn't turn out to feel super crucial to either of us. And so from there, we really started playing around with what non-monogamy means and what it could look like. And I think our path is fairly common, though not everyone starts this way. We started more looking at like um, kind of like swinging and um, like sexual non-monogamy is, is where we started. And we had a few experiences with people we knew, people we didn't know. We went to a few um, like sex clubs. And what I quickly discovered was for me, I don't enjoy having sex with strangers. There's just a lot that's missing there mm. that I really was craving, specifically connection, um, emotional intimacy, and knowing someone. So from there, you know, we looked at, okay, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And we discovered, I mean, we had heard of polyamory, but we really started looking at it a little deeper. And I, I read some books. We found a local discussion group that discussed issues related to open relationships and specifically to polyamory. We started attending that once or twice a week to just listen and learn. And after doing that for a few months from there, we kind of took our tentative first steps to um, open our relationship beyond just um, the physical and really into forming romantic connections with other folks. And and did you do that together or, or separately apart? Which part? Um, in, in bringing someone else into um, your relationship. We did it separately. Mm-hmm. So we, we decided to date separately. Um, it is one of, it's actually, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's um, one of the common misconceptions and one of the common mistakes people make is to assume that it will be easier to bring someone into a pre-existing relationship. So for a triad mm. where you bring someone in and date them together, <clears throat> that is possible. And there are people who do that very successfully. And that is actually one of the more complex and harder mm ways to do polyamory. And so it's really not recommended for um, beginners. The other reason why it can be so fraught for folks who are newer is that it is, it takes a lot of skill and practice to be able to do that without treating that third person very poorly. Mm. And so, you know, what, what often happens or is kind of the trope that, that people in polyamory, um, often think of and are very wary when it's a, a newer couple coming in looking to add add a third is what they say. Mm. Um, and, and what often happens is that couple will kind of claim privilege, like, well, this is our relationship and we're letting you in as a guest, but you're not really an equal. Mm. You know, you've got to follow our rules. You've got to like us both equally. You can't date, you know, you have to date us together. And that puts 
a really heavy burden on that third person. And mm. in some ways this can be quite unfair to them and doesn't quite treat them as an autonomous individual who, you know, might want to form connections with those, both those people as individuals rather than just them as a unit. Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky uh, triangle there, isn't it? Um, and, you know, like we're so conditioned uh, in society to, to have monogamy in our relationships and there's, there's almost this shame or this stigma around it if, if you have an open relationship and, and you do explore things like non-monogamy. Um, you know, how do you deal with the – like if you're in that primary relationship and you're dating – one or multiple other people on the side, how do you deal with the jealousy that can come up from that? Yeah. I'm so glad you brought this up. There's, I mean, the gosh, there's so many layers to what you just said that I want to touch on. Yeah. So, um, starting with it, I think the first thing you said, I want to touch on, you said that, um, we're so conditioned Mm. for monogamy. And I think that is so true. I spent so much time talking to my clients about this. Um, there's language that's been used around it to call it compulsory monogamy, Mm. which, you know, we're borrowing from queer theory and Mm. like from, you know, compulsory heterosexuality and, and building upon that to then extrapolate and talk about compulsory monogamy. But compulsory monogamy is the idea that the expectation that is put on all of us that having a long-term monogamous relationship is the marker of success, of maturity, of being a real adult, all of these assumptions that, that go put on people and anyone who wants anything different is treated as deviant mm. or suspicious or somehow wrong. Mm. And this is such an important thing for folks who are newer to polyamory to unpack because we've all been conditioned into what I call monogamy mindset, which is thinking that, you know, I've got to be the best. I've got to be the most special. If my partner wants something other than me, that must mean I am flawed in some way, or I am less than when, when we really break that down and examine it, there's, it's really, it's an assumption. It's something that's been handed to us. That's not necessarily true. And yet we're given it as this absolute truth. Your partner should be everything to you. They should meet all your needs. I mean, these things that are deeply unrealistic and I think actually harm monogamous people as much as they harm polyamorous people Mm -hmm. because it just puts this unfair expectation on folks. Mm -hmm. And so when we start to break down that conditioning, we're 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 moving away from this monogamous paradigm that tells us love is a zero sum game. Mm. There is only so much love to go around. And so if you love someone else, that means you, you love me less. I am losing out on something if you love someone else in addition to me. And so that is a part of how, um, how we address jealousy is really looking at what are some of these assumptions that are baked in Mm. that maybe we need to unpack. Mm. And maybe there are different beliefs. Like what, if we really look at our own values, each of us, what really reflects our beliefs about love, about connection, about community, about acceptance. And can we form our own beliefs that weren't the ones that were just handed to us by default, but that make more sense for us Mm. given given our lived experience and our desired experience moving forward. Mm. And it's, it's really, you'd have to have, um, a, a very, um, 
clear mindset when you when you look at this because um, you have to be very um, strong about yourself and and your relationship um, before you start to to wander beyond that because that's where you can start to have problems like you know uh, if your partner's off dating someone else and you haven't dealt with what the boundaries and the rules are in your relationship um, for both of you um, that's where things can start to fall apart right I mean, it's one of the many places things can start to fall apart for sure. Yeah. I mean, so I run um, an eight week program for folks who are newer to polyamory. And the very first week we talk about like values. What's your why? Why are you Mm. doing this? Why is this important to you? And that that's something you can come back to and you can ground in when things get hard. Um, And in terms of rules and boundaries, there's... I I spent a whole week on this, um, in my group, but like there is, there is a lot to unpack even around that. So I think that, you know, there's rules, there's boundaries and there's agreements. And I think it's really important to differentiate between the three because they both, they all three do different things and have different roles. So boundaries often get used interchangeably with rules, but boundaries are actually the, my own limits that I set up for myself Mm -hmm. and the steps that I will take to make sure that those limits are respected. So it's not about you. It's not saying you can do this or that, or you can't do this or that. It's about saying, here's what I'm okay with. And if I receive treatment from you that is outside of what I've shared with you is my boundary and I'm okay with, I'm going to take steps to take care of myself. Mm. That may mean I leave the conversation. That may mean I take space. That may mean I leave the relationship. It may mean there's certain ways that we no longer engage because I have taken steps to take care of myself. So boundaries are focused on me, not the other person. With rules, rules are something that I I see backfire a lot because rules are kind of dictates, right? Like here's what you're allowed to do. Here's what you're not allowed to do. And, And it can lead to the person who the rules are being put on can feel really restricted and controlled and it can kind of threaten their autonomy. And for a lot of folks, autonomy is a strong value that that draws them to polyamory. Mm. And so I tend to really encourage folks to make agreements rather than rules. And the difference is rules are kind of dictates like this is how it is. This cannot ever be broken. And there's really no recourse if it is broken. Whereas with agreements, agreements are things that are negotiated. Let's sit down. Let's talk about what you want. Let's talk about what I want. Let's talk about what our limits are. And let's negotiate what our relationship agreements are, what makes sense for us. And so the difference, another difference between rules is agreements require the buy-in of both people Mm. and they can be renegotiated at any time. So if someone's bumping up against that agreement, they can come to their partner and say, you know, I'm not sure this agreement is totally working for me anymore. Can we sit down and renegotiate this? Mm. And that's it is, is being flexible and understanding that as you evolve, the, the relationships around you evolve too. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Now, um, polyamory or open relationships, let's, let's just use that term for a second, um, are becoming a little more mainstream than they used to be. We're hearing more about it in the media um, and, you know, more recently, um, probably in a high-profile kind of setting, Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith are quite open about their open relationship and how they manage their relationship. I was um, reading something about, um, you know, what they have said previously in the media and um, 
basically, um, you know, if he wants to go and have sex with someone else, um, she has to give him permission to do that. Um, and that's pretty much how they manage it in their relationship. Um, do you, do you see that kind of thing a lot? I mean, I think that that, so when you say that kind of thing a lot, you mean like permission needs to be granted. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't see that always working out so well in polyamory. Mm. Um, like I said, I think part of the, the piece of, um, polyamory is the autonomy piece and respecting each individual's autonomy Mm. and, you know, allowing each person to, to make choices. Now, not everyone does it this way. There are people who seek permission before they can do things. Mm. Um, that I've seen that lead to a lot of resentment Mm. at times and people feeling constricted. And then, you know, especially, I mean, maybe that works if it's an open relationship where it's just sexual and we're not talking about also romance and love and deeper connections. But when we're talking about those things, what becomes problematic is, so there's, you know, person A, person B and person C. So let's say it's you, me, and another person, and you fall in love with another person and, or you're starting to develop feelings. And then you come to me and say, Hey, I'm really interested in this person. And I'd like to date them. And if I say no, I am now getting to control what Mm. happens between a relationship that I'm not a part of. Mm. And for a lot of people that feels like, um, unethical Mm. or like, a, a a problematic and can lead to a lot of resentment. It also brings up this idea that's really hotly debated in, um, polyamory communities of veto power Mm. and veto power is the idea going back to that same example. Let's say that you do start dating this other person. If I have veto power, I can at any point say, you know what, call it off. I don't Mm. want you to do it anymore. Mm. And that also is very problematic because again, me, the person who's not even in the relationship is getting to decide when it ends, how it ends. And these two people who have their feelings and their heart really wrapped up suddenly are just, you know, out to dry because of someone else who's really, I mean, in my opinion, shouldn't get to have say on a relationship they're not a part of. Mm. Yeah. And it's almost like an ownership, isn't it? Like, a, and I think the whole respect sort of just goes out the window. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I I think you're right. And what we're really trying to move away from in polyamory is this idea that of ownership Mm. that I think is part of toxic monogamy culture. Mm. And I want to give a caveat. I am not saying that monogamy is toxic at all. I think monogamy is a very valid choice for a lot of people. I think there are ways in which monogamy gets taught and modeled to us that are very toxic. And one of those ways is you own your partner. Mm. And your partner has to do what you say. They belong to you. You two belong to each other. And there's almost like a kind of codependent vibe that gets romanticized as part of monogamy when it comes to toxic monogamy culture. Um, bit of a curious question. You know, when we look at um, polyamory relationships, um, quite often do you find that they are also um, going beyond the boundaries of, of, you know, traditional heterosexual relationships? Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm. I think that, um, I mean, you know, I, I only know the people I know. I haven't done any like data driven studies on this, but within the communities that I'm a part of and the communities that I work with, I think that, um, the vast majority of folks have some sort of queer identity Mm. and 
and, you know, I think part of that is because, you know, it's, it's so much more expansive and so much more accepting, and there's so much more that's available to folks. Mm. And when you're not having to pick just one partner, then there's more room to explore across the gender spectrum. Mm. Yeah. And it's um, coming back to that education piece that, that you start with, with people, um, you know, it's really learning a whole new way of what, what love really is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think it is in some ways it's unlearning the idea that love is possessive, Mm. that love is, like I said, a zero sum game Mm. and, and embracing the idea of love as expansive of love as abundant of love is something that we can share with many people. And what's so interesting to me is some people find this such a radical idea and yet nobody thinks it's weird when we talk about having love for many friends or having love for multiple children. Mm. Everyone's like, yeah, of course you have plenty of love to go around. But as soon as we start talking about romance People are like, oh, well, no, I mean, only one person. It doesn't make sense that you'd love more than one person. It, and and yeah. it's like such an interesting question. I always want to say, why? Mm. Mm. Why not? Where did this belief come from? Mm. And why do we put a limit on love? Right. Mm. Just doesn't make sense, does it? <laughs> no, when you really think about it, it doesn't. Mm. So tell us a bit more about um, the program that you take people through um, in, in the steps that you do. Yeah. So, um, I have one way that, um, I, I serve folks, um, who might not have as much, um, economic access is I have a free, uh, five day jealousy mini course that, um, I like to refer people to, and that is really breaking down the idea of jealousy for folks and teaching new ways of how to cope, how both how to understand jealousy and how to cope with it. Um, I break it down into three different layers. And the first layer is our physical response. So our nervous system response. And so anytime we experience jealousy or relational distress, the first place it hits us is in our nervous system, in our body. For me, it's like right behind the solar plexus. I just get this like Mm. tightening Mm -hmm. for some people, it's their chest or their stomach, but everyone has like a, oh yeah, I know exactly where I feel that. And I think why this is so important to to notice is because when our nervous system activates, we lose blood flow to our brain and we're no longer able to actively use our critical thinking skills and our cause and effect skills. So we end up doing things that we might later think, oh my God, how could (laughs) I have done something like that? Or saying things we later regret. Mm. And so before we can employ the other skills and the other two components of jealousy, we we really need to first tackle this, getting the, getting the system back online and soothing the nervous system so that we can even access those other skills. So, and I talk in the course about some different ways to kind of soothe and bring your nervous system and your brain back online. Um, And then the second one is really looking at our thoughts. So, when, when we experience something like jealousy, we have all kinds of thoughts. This person doesn't love me anymore. They've forgotten all about me. They're going to run away with this other person. They're ignoring me, whatever it is. And, you know, I love the phrase that says, don't believe everything you think. 
And I think that's so true because so many of our thoughts are based on negative assumptions, negative self-beliefs, things we've been told that may not actually line up with reality. And especially when they're, we're in that activated nervous system state, those those negative thoughts can really, we can run away with them. Mm. So the second part is really recognizing those thoughts and learning how to gently challenge them and start to replace them with more realistic or reasonable or grounded thoughts. And then the very final one, the third one is about uh, emotions. So the idea that jealousy is actually a blanket term that talks about a lot of different, a whole spectrum of emotions. Mm. It could be anger. It could be hurt. It could be fear. It could be threat. And so really kind of refining our idea of what am I really feeling? What is truly coming up for me right now? And once we can get a little more nuanced with it, we can both attend to our feelings and decide what it is I want to do about those feelings. Because I think such a big difference um, in how polyamorous people deal with jealousy is that jealousy is the beginning of the conversation. It's not the end of the conversation. It's not I'm jealous. So stop doing that thing that makes me jealous. Instead, it's, huh, I'm jealous. Let me get curious about what's, what's bringing this feeling up for me. Are, do I have needs that aren't being met? Are there old beliefs that are coming up for me? Is this monogamy mindset getting in the way? Or is there a way I do feel like I'm not being considered by my partner and I'd like to make a concrete request about getting something different from them? And so it, it's an invitation to get curious rather than a kind of like, oh, I need to shut things down because this is an unpleasant feeling. Mm. And <clears throat> I love what you say there about, um, you know, getting deeper with the emotions. Um, I, I've just uh, finished reading uh, Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart and she really goes into all of those emotions that we feel but we don't understand or we don't even know how to talk about. And there's so many of us who are just not in touch with what we're actually feeling. You know, we've, yeah. we've not been educated to know what those feelings are or even to be able to talk about them or identify them. And quite often, we, again, like you've said, we use a blanket term which can mean something completely different than what we're actually experiencing. And when we just stop and we look at, okay, well, what actually is this? And then look at what the trigger is. We can actually change our whole reaction to the way we operate in the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. It's so powerful yeah. that how that kind of awareness can be the beginning of some powerful change. Yeah, and self-awareness just alone, not even in a relationship, my God, you can change your life. Um, yeah. But yeah, I d no doubt you probably work with so many people who just, who can't find the word for that feeling or or know what it is. Yes, you that's know? so true. And And one of the weeks in my longer course, one of the weeks we actually, as part of it, we go through a feelings list and actually mm. practice like, what are the feelings coming up for you? I mean, it sounds silly, but sometimes it's very profound to think what, what are the actual feelings when I dig deeper instead of just, I'm mad. Mm. Like, okay, yeah, mm. mad is a feeling. What else, what else is coming up for you? Mm. And really also this one's so such a like light bulb moment for folks sometimes is like, digging into the feelings that are more than an interpretation of what someone else is doing. So instead of saying, I feel ignored or I feel rejected, because that's, that's not an actual feeling, mm. right? That doesn't describe an emotional state. That describes an interpretation of what someone else is doing to us. Mm. And so digging deeper and saying, okay, so you're feeling rejected. What, what deeper feeling comes up for you when you feel rejected? What's underneath that? Mm. Let's dig a little deeper. 
And that can be really powerful work. Yeah. And and just doing that work on yourself, um, it can help you not only in, in your own relationship with yourself, but with others. I think, you know, that in itself is just something that we all need to do. And I reckon this is where we need to get back to education as children, you know, like kids just don't know what what they're feeling, what's going on with them. And we need to get in a bit earlier so that we don't end up at 40 and go, I don't know what's going on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think a lot of adults truly don't know that kind of thing yet. I mean, a lot of the folks I work with, the next thing after we identify feelings, we um, do a piece in the course where we look at what are the needs and can you link those needs to concrete requests. And so many times when I bring up the the needs list with people, it actually moves people to tears mm. because they look at that list and think, I, I am so, I'm not even in touch with what I need. I haven't really ever thought about it this way. Mm. And that is so powerful. Yeah, exactly. And and even in relationships, they don't communicate what those needs are. And then they wonder why why they have arguments or things fall apart. Right. And, but it's actually quite a, quite a, um, honed skill to be able to unpack your feeling, get to the need. And then from there, be able to make a concrete request of your partner. Mm. Like that is, that is a learned skill. And and if, if we're never taught it, then yeah, of course we don't know how to do it. Yeah. I I think there's, we need to change education and just like, you know, have a relationships 101 in there or something, you know? Oh, I love that idea. (laughs) So, um, Heidi, tell us a bit about, um, some of the people that you've worked with and the kind of change that they've seen in their relationships by working with you. Yeah. So, so let's see, I want to, anonymize this so I don't end up talking about anyone specific, but, um, yeah, I've, I've worked with, um, someone who came in, in a place of feeling like, okay, I'm doing this polyamory thing. Um, my partner is really gung ho on this and I am really struggling. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure I want to do this. It's too hard. I'm ending up saying and doing things that I regret and acting in ways that I don't even recognize myself when I act that way. And through the course, through learning about, um, the dysreg, the nervous system dysregulation and what happens in the brain and learning skills around identifying feelings, identifying needs, learning how to self-soothe, how to take breaks when things, when they do get to that place where, Oh, I'm going to say or do something regrettable. Um, as well as unpacking monogamy mindset Mm. and really looking at what are the assumptions at play here? Where did I learn these? What was taught to me growing up about monogamy? And what was taught to me about non-monogamy? What were the ways when I was a child that non-monogamy was, I was exposed to it. And for a lot of people, it's through a family member having an affair Mm. and it being a really hurtful, devastating experience for the family and having these like moments of, oh, well, no wonder I think so negatively about non-monogamy. That's the only way I've seen it. And that was such a traumatic and devastating event for my family. And then from there, looking at what are my dreams or hopes? What, how could this really work for me? If I connect this to my values and my dreams and really embrace polyamory, what could that mean for 
my family, my friends, my community, my children, like what, how could this expand, you know, the, the way that I experience the world. Um, and, you know, also I think learning about, um, the pieces of sexual health and safety, advocating for your own needs, asking for what you want. So, so as this person walked through this process, they, um, they really, I mean, it was such a profound transformation. And by the end, they were able to identify their feelings mm. and identify their needs. And they were one of those people who were like, I never, I never even had words for my feelings or needs. This is incredible. Mm. And they got to the end where they, I'm not going to say it was all sunshine and rainbows. And they were like, oh, I never have a problem again. But when they did have struggles in polyamory, they were able to address them in a way where they weren't saying things they regretted. They weren't having big blowout fights. They weren't doing things that then, you know, was harmful to them and their relationships and their partners and got to the point where they were really able to, to see this as something other than a fearful thing that's being done to me. Mm. And instead really lean into this is, this is an opportunity. And, and the person even said at the end, I don't know if I'll stick with polyamory or not, but I feel so much less threatened by it mm. and that I have the tools to give it a fair shake and see if it works for me. And it no longer feels like devastating or like something to be afraid of. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And like, would you say that there's some people that polyamory just would not work for? I do think, yeah, I mm. think there's plenty of people who polyamory might not work for, um, you know, and, and like I said earlier, I think monogamy is a perfectly valid choice. And if people find satisfaction in monogamy, then I think that's great. Um, I I think that polyamory is both for people who do feel intrigued by or long for a more expansive love, people who have a really high value around um, autonomy, um, and folks who are really interested in doing a lot of deep internal work and deep self-reflection and really like to do a lot of processing with partners and find that to be a way that, that they become closer mm. because so much, I mean, there's all these jokes around like, Oh, everyone thinks polyamory is about sex, but really it's about a lot of emotional processing. Mm. And, and, you know, there's truth to that. Mm. And so I think that for folks who don't enjoy that or don't find that to be meaningful or fulfilling, like probably polyamory would not be a good fit for them. Mm. And I guess, you know, from some of the situations I've seen, um, one of the challenges is where uh, someone enters into a relationship with someone who's married um, and, like, society just, like, frowns upon that because they don't understand that this relationship is different from a traditional monogamy kind of based relationship. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a great example of people who are looking at that through a monogamy lens, mm. right? Mm. So if you're looking at that through a monogamy lens, then the person who's dating the, you know, who's dating outside their marriage is like a jerk mm. or ruining the marriage or, you know, mm. deceptive. And the other person is like the other person, mm. you know, the home wrecker. Yeah. But but really, if we're to consider polyamory, it really requires a paradigm shift. Mm. We have to shift away from this monogamous lens of there's always this stable dyad and maybe there can be some people on the side to like, 
each relationship is its own and each relationship has value and and that one relationship doesn't have to threaten the other one mm-hmm. and doesn't have to be a negative thing. I mean, for lots of folks in polyamory, they um, they practice what's called kitchen table polyamory, which is the idea that you can have close relationships with all of your partners and, and metamors, which are the people that your partners are dating. Mm-hmm. So that you know, it's almost like an extended family and folks are close. And the idea is you could all sit around the kitchen table and share a meal together. Mm. And not everyone engages in that type of polyamory, but, but for folks who do, it's really, I mean, it, it, you can't look at that with a monogamy lens and really understand it. It really takes shifting. And I think the other thing you're speaking to is just the, the stigma Mm. that is faced by folks. And that is very real. I mean, I experienced that myself my clients experience that. And, you know, I, I think that it's it's something that needs to be considered because it can influence how and when and if people come out as polyamorous or talk about their various relationships. And interestingly, I don't know how it is in Australia, but in the U.S., we have um, certain protected classes of folks. So people can't be discriminated against, um, based on their gender, based on their sexual orientation, religion, race, but, um, relationship style is not one Mm -hmm. of those. So people, it is absolutely legal to discriminate against someone for being polyamorous or to fire someone. And that does happen. They have something called like a morality clause that people have to sign Mm -hmm. when they start a job about not acting in like, in using heavy quotation marks here, immoral ways. And so then they can say, oh, well, that's infidelity. So you violated the morality clause. I don't know how often that actually happens, but it's a risk Mm. that people have to consider. Wow. So much judgment, (laughs) isn't it? So much judgment. Like, wow. Um, But, you know, what you've said there around the kitchen table um, concept, um, I think is, is really radical for some people to get their head around in that, you know, yeah they can all sit around the table together and not want to stab each other. You know, it's like, it's completely okay. And I think once you've seen and experienced that kind of thing, it's the most beautiful kind of relationship, you know, that anybody could be a part of. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of love to, Mm. to be had and a lot of like deep connection. And interestingly, thinking about it myself, some of my closest friends are people that I met when my partner was dating them Mm. and, you know, they, they've become very close friends and I have my own relationship with them outright. And, and like, if for someone who has shifted outside of the monogamy paradigm, it's like, oh my God, what a cool thing that there's like a whole new world of folks that could be potential friends. Mm. And and you've got that partner is dating. Yeah. You've got that shared connection of love for the same person. Yeah. Which can be a really beautiful thing. Yeah. Wow. I, wow, I could talk about this all day, Heidi. I really could. <laughs> There's so many different mazes we could go through here. And um, if people want to find out more about you and what you do, where can they go? So there's my website, which is sheloves.radically.com. Um, folks can sign up for that free uh, mini course on jealousy. Um, or they can also find me on Instagram. I'm at sheloves.radically. And yeah, I'm always putting up new content there, but um, information about my courses and my groups and trainings and things like that are on the main website. Awesome. Now, the last big question I've got for you that I love to ask everyone, what's the change you'd like to see in the world and how can we bring it to life? 
Mm. I mean, I think this is very on theme with what we've been talking about, but I wish that we could all approach difference with less judgment Mm. and more curiosity. Mm. I think curiosity is just like, it's like my word of the year. I want like curiosity is just such a powerful thing to have. And, you know, it's expansive and we can learn and there's acceptance in there. And, and so, yeah, I think that if, if even just a small shift from judgment to curiosity could really change the whole world. Yeah. And I think that's what's really bubbled out of our conversation here today is if there are a lot less judgment, there'd be a lot more love. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So well said. (laughs) Thank you so much, Heidi, uh, for being a part of the ethical evolution. I have loved every second. I have too. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Ethical Evolution Podcast. If you're ready to be the change and would love to work with me on finding your voice through spiritual coaching or creating your own podcast with impact, visit ethicalchangeagency.com. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric acid.